This past week, I was listening to a podcast called Heavyweight, and it's a storytelling podcast. And the host of the podcast, his name is Jonathan Goldstein. And in this particular episode, he was telling a story from his own life. He grew up with a childhood friend named Lenny. And as Lenny grew, uh, Lenny became an increasingly angry person to the point where it was hard to maintain their friendship, and they kind of fell apart from each other. But they reconnected later in life once he learned that Lenny was dying of cancer. And in this episode, he records his phone conversations with Lenny as Lenny realizes that the end is near. And uh, Lenny, in this podcast, says these words. He says, love, they ask him, what's your one message for the world? He says, love more, fight less. Fighting doesn't get you very far. Those, Those are good words, right? But what actually gives those words more weight is that they were Lenny's last words. The last things that this man said before he stepped into eternity was, love more, fight less, fighting doesn't get you very far. The weight of words often are heightened by the context of the words, right? Words matter, but it's what's happening in that situation. I have a dream is a great speech, but because of when it happened in history, it has more weight to it. When Neil Armstrong said it's one small, steep, or one small step for man, one giant leap for humankind, it's a great line, but it means so much today because of where he was when he said it, right? And this morning as we are continuing in our series through First and Second Peter, we're going to come to a passage that has really powerful words in it, but I think they mean more when we understand the context, specifically two things. The first thing is this, Peter is being attacked by his opponents. People are trashing Peter. They're saying he's a liar. He's made things up. You can't trust him. You can't believe in what he's teaching and in what he is saying, okay? So that's the first backdrop for these words. But the second thing is that Peter actually knows that he's about to die also. His time is ending. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, Peter says it this way. He says, The Lord our Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. So I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I'm gone. And so the next uh, several verses is where we're going to be this morning. But as we read them, I want you to realize that in, in, in Peter's mind is, are two things. Number one, I'm not going to be with you forever. My time is coming to an end, and also people are attacking everything about my life and my ministry, and they will continue to do so after I'm dead. So please listen to what I'm about to say. So let's listen together. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. The apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest followers, writes these words. We were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when we received glory, honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, Jesus, this is my dearly son whom gives me great joy. Peter's talking about this event that's recorded in the Gospels called the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the apostles, went up a mountain with Jesus and got a glimpse into the glorified Jesus Christ and Moses and Elijah are there. And in, the, in that moment, God speaks from heaven over Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased and gives me great joy. Verse 18, we heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
Now, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. Notice that Peter doesn't say our, our, our confidence is in that experience. He says that experience gave us greater confidence in God's word. That's important for us to remember. Our faith is not built on our feelings and our experiences. Hopefully, you each will have or have had experiences with God's presence, encounters with the goodness of God that you can look back to and remember. But our faith doesn't rise and fall on our feelings and our experiences. Those things are given to us to confirm the truth of God's word. That's what Peter's saying here. Then he goes on to say, You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the Christ and Christ the morning star shines in your heart. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by or carried along by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So think about this. Peter knows he's not going to be around long and he knows his message will be attacked. It will always be attacked. So with one eye on the future, what does Peter say? He points them, he directs them to the message about Jesus, the eyewitness accounts of his life, his ministry, his miracles, his healings, his teachings, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension, and he points them to the Old Testament scriptures. That's what Peter's talking about. When he uses the word scriptures here, he's referencing the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. And what I want us to notice is that Peter doesn't say, look at me, He says, look at the message. He's not saying, put your faith and trust and hope in me. He's saying, put your faith and trust and hope in Jesus, who is the center of this message. And I just want to say this morning is that is still true. I want you to hear that from me as one of your pastors. Do not put your faith and trust and hope in me. We had Pastor's Appreciation Day last month, and I read so many encouraging words in the cards that we received. And at the same time, what I wanted to say to everyone was, Please put your greatest hope in Jesus. People fail, right? People mess up. People make mistakes. Leaders fail. Pastors mess up. We're just like you. Place, Peter doesn't say put your faith in me. He says put your faith in the things that I've seen. This message is about Jesus. You can believe it, you can trust it, and you can build your entire life on it. So this morning, there's three things that we learn from this text that are true about the message of Jesus. And the first thing is this, it was seen by human eyes. Seen by human eyes. Sherwin Williams, the uh, Sherwin Williams the paint company, their headquarters is in Cleveland, Ohio, and they have this large brick building and at different times throughout history they put this picture or massive pictures up on the side of this building. And this is one of the ones that went up when LeBron James was uh, winning uh, NBA titles with the Cleveland Cavaliers. They put this massive thing up on the wall there and it says, we are all witnesses. And what they're saying is, with our own eyes, we're watching LeBron James. With our own eyes, we can see his greatness. And some people would say he's the greatest basketball player of all time. And they would say, I can witness it with my own eyes. My problem is that I witnessed another player with my own eyes in the 90s named Michael Jordan, who for me will always be the GOAT, the greatest of all time. In fact, I I saw him literally with my own eyes. Michael Jordan, on October 20th of 1992, played an exhibition game with the Bulls right after they won their first championship, right after the Dream Team won the Summer Olympics. That October, he was in the Carrier Dome. 
playing against the Nets, and a friend of mine at school happened to have an extra ticket, and I didn't know until I got there. The ticket was like three rows behind the Bulls bench. One of the happiest moments of my young life because I was a Jordan fan. I witnessed with my own eyes. And when you've seen something with your own eyes, someone can't talk you out of it. No, none of you can say to me, you didn't see Michael Jordan play. You weren't there because I witnessed it with my own eyes. And the accusation that people are making about Peter's message is captured in the phrase, clever stories. At the beginning of, the, of, of this uh, passage, Peter says, we didn't make up clever stories. And other ways to interpret that phrase, clever stories, is people were saying it's a myth. You guys have made this up. It's a, it's a fable. It's a, it's a lie. There, there's embellishments. There's speculation. And Peter's saying, no, I saw these things with my own eyes. You can say what you want about my message, but I was there. About 30 minutes after midnight on June 17th, 1972, a security guard was patrolling the parking garage at the Watergate office complex in Washington, and he noticed masking tape covering locks on a stairwell door. He thought, well, maybe the maintenance crew had taped the doors to keep them from locking. And so this 24-year-old security guard ripped off the tape and then went for his shift break across the street to the restaurant at the Howard Johnson's Motor Lodge for carryout. A little more than an hour later, he was walking past that door again, and he noticed that the tape had reappeared. He called the police. His name is Frank Willis, and I'm guessing probably none of you could have come up with his name unless you're a real history buff. He's been forgotten, but you know the name Watergate. You know the name Richard Nixon. See, the significance is not in who witnesses something. The significance is in what was witnessed. Frank Willis has long been forgotten, but Watergate has not. He's not important. What he saw that night is important. And Peter's not really the important one here. The apostles are not really the important ones. What's really important is what they witnessed. And so Peter is saying, I may die, but this message must not die. The 12 apostles may not live forever, and of course they didn't, but this truth must live forever. And then Peter says, I'm not the only one who saw this. In fact, he uses the pronoun not I, but he uses the pronoun we. We saw this. And what Peter is reminding the audience back then and us today is that Jesus was not just seen by one or two people. Jesus was seen by many people. There were so many public witnesses of Jesus, the Son of God, by those who followed him and by those who did not follow him. And this, by the way, is a unique characteristic of the Christian faith, that Christianity is inextricably rooted in history. It's historically verifiable. You know, in fact, when you read the Gospels, they often mention specific places or specific names. And what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are basically saying is, Go ask those people. They were, they're still alive. These, these things were being circulated and read and talked about while these people were still alive. So when he lists the name of a place, it was like they were inviting a skeptic to go, go to Galilee, go to Nazareth, go to these places and talk to these people because this was not just seen by a few people who concocted a lie, a myth, a fable. This was seen publicly and broadly. And this is unique about Christianity. I want to talk real quickly about a few other religions and some of their origins. And this is not a thorough treatment of any of them. So uh, I don't want you to think that I'm, I, I'm trying to explain them in detail. 
But I just want you to see the difference between the origin of the Christian faith and the origin of other faiths. So Buddhism was founded in northeastern India by a prince in the 6th century B.C. Having achieved enlightenment, he began to preach a path of salvation to his followers. It was one individual all by himself who was uh, spiritually enlightened, not a person who walked uh, historically through people's lives and was seen by many. Islam, uh, when he was roughly 40, about 600 years, uh, 610 AD, Muhammad began to have visions and hear voices and he would meditate. On one of these occasions, he believed that the archangel Gabriel appeared to him and gave him a revelation that was the basis of Quran, the holy book of Islam. But again, it's one person having one private, personal, spiritual revelation that nobody else saw and of course, millions of people have built their lives on. Hinduism can't even be traced to a single founder, a single scripture. There's not even really a commonly agreed upon set of teachings. Mormonism sprang not very far from here, actually, from the visions of our farm boy, Joseph Smith, in 1820 in western New York. He was praying to God for answers about which denomination he should join, and he supposedly received a vision from both God and Christ who told him that all the existing churches are wrong. And so he started his own. But Christianity rises and falls on a historical person and the biblical and historical evidence that a man named Jesus was born, lived, died, and lived again, all in plain sight, witnessed and seen by many. Jesus' ministry, he traveled all over Galilee, all the surrounding areas, all the towns, all the villages. He went into Jerusalem, the center of the, of the Jewish world that time. His trial was not, uh, was not hidden or secret. It was in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was in front of Herod. It was in front of Pilate. Everybody saw him walk through the streets carrying the cross. He was, he was executed and, and humiliated in a public way where anybody could have seen him dying on a cross. And then his resurrection, after Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen by many. According to Paul and Corinthians, he was seen by 500 people at one time. And so Peter is saying, not I was an eyewitness of Jesus, but we are all eyewitnesses. Trust the message, the message about Jesus, and there were many eyewitnesses. So the first thing about this message is it was seen by human eyes. Secondly, it was spoken by God through men. By God through men. Most people believe all the writers in the, new, in, in the scriptures were men. There is some debate about the book of Hebrews. But I want to take us back. Verse 20 and 21, it says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. What, what Peter is saying here is that people didn't just make stuff up. It wasn't like, I got a good idea. It wasn't like, I have a good thought. It was the Holy Spirit inspiring the writers of Scripture. And that phrase, prophecy in Scripture, in verse 20, what that actually means is the Old Testament. It's the law and the prophets. And so everything that the Jewish believer at that time and the Gentile believer had as God's word was the law and the prophets, which we now call the Old Testament. And, and Peter wants us to know here that the word that we hold, this word that we hold in our hands, it was spoken not just by men, but it was spoken by God, but not just by God directly to us, but it was spoken by God through humans. Now, there's two relationships that we learn that are very important in this passage. And the first is the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
There are some Christians who love the New Testament, and, and how many of you know that it's a little easier to read? It's a little easier to understand. And if you're a new Christian, I often encourage you to start somewhere in the New Testament, specifically in one of the Gospels. The Old Testament is kind of confusing, and it's archaic, and it's thousands of years ago, and it's hard to understand. And yet, we need both. Because St. Augustine said the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is everything in the New Testament, but it's concealed. It's like we can't fully see it and understand it. It's all pointing to Jesus, but it's hard to understand on its own. But then the New Testament reveals to us what the Old Testament was about. And so we realize as we get to Jesus that every priest in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, our true high priest. Every prophet in the Old Testament made us hungry for the word of God, which was revealed in Jesus, the word. Every king in the Old Testament that fell in his or her own way points us to the one true king, Jesus, who left his throne to come to his people. The key to understanding the New Testament is to see the fulfillment of the Old Testament in it. And the key to understanding the Old Testament is to see that in a way it's concealing to us the New Testament. And by the way, we know this because in, in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, the day that he rises from the dead, that afternoon he's walking with two of his disciples to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. They don't even know that it's him. And it says that as they were walking together, that Jesus opened up to them the law and the prophets, which is the Old Testament. The New Testament, of course, did not exist yet. He opened up to them the law and the prophets, and he showed them how it was all about him. So every Old Testament story points to a true and greater hero, Jesus. David is not the hero. Jesus is our true and greater David who saved us from the only giants that could really destroy us, the giants of sin, death, hell, and the grave. And so as we read the Old Testament, there should be a part of our hearts that is always leaning to Jesus. How does this show me my need for Jesus? How does this show me that Jesus came to do what needed to be solved in this situation? How does it show me that Jesus is better than this person, greater than this leader, in all those ways? And if Jesus respected the Old Testament in this way, then so should we. And the New Testament writers, they treated the Old Testament like it was trustworthy. They quoted it, they used it, and so should we. So we see the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the other thing that we see in this passage is the relationship between God and humans. Because it says they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He wrote it through men who were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. And that phrase, or that, that um, Greek verb, moved by the Holy Spirit, it's actually a sailing term. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sea term. It's, a, it's the idea of putting up your sail so that the wind can fill it and move you. And that's why other translations say the prophets were carried along. So I'm not a sail person. I'm not a, I've never done anything like that. I don't know anything about it, but I understand the basic idea. You gotta put your sail up or else the wind's never gonna catch it, right? And so by choosing this word, Peter's teaching us something. Yes, you gotta put your sail up or the wind's never gonna catch it, but you can put your sail up and if there's no wind, you're just gonna sit there. And Peter's saying it's both. The, 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 these, these men who were faithful and obedient to God, they, they raised their sails, so to speak, which means they were obedient and receptive, but the Holy Spirit filled them and carried the craft along in the direction that he wished. So men spoke and wrote, but God was the one speaking. So John Calvin says it this way, the Holy Spirit did not use instruments, he used men. If God just wanted to give us a book, he could have. 
He can do anything. But he wanted to use us to reach us. And by the way, that's still his plan. He wants to use you to reach your friends, to reach your family, to reach your neighbor. John Calvin said, the Holy Spirit did not use instruments, he used men. And even with such men, he did no, I like this phrase, he did no violence to their personalities. Which means this, in, in, in some mystical religions, if somebody gets a revelation from God, their eyes roll back in their head, they start to float off the ground, and they write something for 45 minutes, and then they collapse, and, and they wake up, and they're as surprised as anybody. Oh, look what I wrote. That's not what happened here. He did not violate their, or do violence to their personalities. He cooperated with them while revealing himself through them to us. He says they were moved, not because they were out of their minds, as the heathens would talk about, but because they dared nothing by themselves, but only in obedience to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so what do we learn here? The, the, the word was spoken by God through men. So the word of God that we have in our hands and that you have on your phones is a beautiful combination of two things. It's a beautiful combination of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's a beautiful combination, but it's also a beautiful combination of the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit and the obedience of regular people like you and me. It's power and mystery is in being God's word that somehow was spoken through humans to humans. God used some of us to reach all of us. That's what Peter is teaching here. And the last thing I want us to see this morning is that this message, it wasn't just seen by human eyes, not just spoken by God through men, but it shines in dark places. It shines in dark places. I'm gonna ask Pastor Antonia to come on up. Verse 19, let's read this verse again. He says, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message provided by the prophets. And he says, you must pay close attention to what they wrote. I hope you hear Peter's words to you this morning because they're, 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 they're for us this morning. You, put your name in, must pay close attention to what is in the scripture. Pay close attention. We're gonna get back to that in just a minute. For their words are like, how does he describe their words? How does he describe scripture? The same way that the, the, the psalmist does in Psalm 119, 105, where it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So he says, their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the Christ morning shines in your hearts. What's the darkest, physically darkest place you've ever been in? What's the darkest place you've ever been? And how good is it for light to pierce through darkness to show us the way in which we should go. And God's word is the same. In the midst of darkness, his word is like a light showing us the path that we should go, the steps that we should take. But God's word also exposes what's there. When I was a teenager, I was on a mission trip to Belize. Two things are true on mission trips to countries in South America, Latin America, Central America. Number one, you eat things you're not used to eating. And, which I like, that doesn't normally bother me, but it ends up bothering me, if you know what I mean. And, and, and number two, the facilities are different. The options are different. Their bathrooms are different, is what I'm trying to say. And so one night, I'm, I'm, I'm at a service at a small church in a field in Belize. And, and, and at this time, at least, because this is many years ago, there's almost zero electricity in this community. And so um, it's near the end of the service, and something I ate earlier is bothering me. <laughs> And so I walk up to someone, I say, I, I really got it. I need to use the restroom. And they just like point into the dark. And I was like, no, 
bathroom, el baño. Like I'm trying to say bathroom in every language I can say it in. And they're like, yeah, there's an outhouse that direction. I can't see anything. So I, I you know, there, thankfully there, you know, there are stars and there's the moon, so I can see enough to get there. And I, I, and I get to the outhouse and I, I open the door to the outhouse, and the moonlight comes shining into this outhouse. And as soon as the light hits the outhouse, things just start scattering on the ground. I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but you know, priorities. There's an emergency happening. Light has the power to show what's always been there. Light has the power to scatter things that shouldn't be there. And when Peter talks about this word of God being a light, he's saying the light shines in the darkness. Now, you and I might think, yeah, there's darkness in this world. There's darkness right now. There's war in the Middle East. There's war in Ukraine. There's things happening in our country. There's things happening in the political realm. There's things happening. And we may say, yeah, they need God's word. But you know, often the darkest place in the world is not out there. It's in here. And we first need the light of God's word to shine into the darkness of our own hearts so that we can see the things that have always been there, but we've never noticed. And what that means, by the way, is that God's word should bother you at times. If you're reading God's scripture every day and it's not stepping on your toes, you're filtering it too much as you're reading it. If you're in God's word every day and it's not offending you, it's not causing you to think differently or believe differently or live differently, you're not really getting the light of God's word. Because if there's a God that's holy and if he has opinions that are different than us and if he speaks to us through his word, then when we open his word, we should be ready for all the dark places and the dark corners in our heart to receive the light and then to respond. Is the world getting darker? It sort of feels like it is. Well, what do we need? We need the word of God, the message of Jesus, more and more and more. This word, pay close attention, means this. Be in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, any need, any error, and be ready to respond appropriately. That's what it means to pay close attention. Be in a continuous state of readiness to learn of danger, need, and error, and to be ready to respond appropriately. But here's what actually research is showing is happening in the American church right now. Biblical literacy levels, which is just people's ability to read and understand and respond to scripture, is, is at an all-time low. In fact, Gallup, the Gallup polls, you've probably heard of the Gallup polls. George Gallup, this is what he says. He says, based on our research, Americans revere the Bible, but they do not read it. They revere it. There's still some level of respect in our country by many towards the Bible, but they do not read it. And because they do not read it, he says, we have a nation of biblical illiterates. He says, how bad is it? He says, researchers are telling us that it's worse than you could imagine. And the scary, most humbling thing is that it's actually not that much better in the church than it is outside the church. And I'm not here to beat you up about your Bible reading or to say if you read your Bible, Jesus will love you more. I thought that a lot of my life. I used to read my Bible because I thought, well, God will notice how good I am and he'll, and he'll bless me. But, you know, I don't read my Bible anymore so that God will notice, so, that God, so I can remind God of how good I am. I read my Bible now because I need to remind myself of how good God is. In a dark world... And with a dark heart at times, I need his light. I need the light of his truth. See, when, when Peter says, I'm going to finish, 
When Peter says, pay close attention, here's what Peter knows. Whatever you pay closest attention to will shape your life. Whatever you pay closest attention to will shape your heart. And whatever you pay closest attention to will shape your future. We had an election day this past Tuesday, not super stressful because we're not electing a new president, but next fall we will. The stress level and the conflict will go up. Christians will fight against Christians. It'll get ugly online. And here's one of my concerns as a pastor, if I can be honest with you. There are people in our churches who pay more, pay closer attention to CNN than they do to the Bible. Pay closer attention to Fox News than they do to the Bible. They know what the, they know what Joe Rogan is saying more than they know what Jesus is saying. And listen, I'm not saying don't be informed. I'm not saying don't watch the news. What I'm saying is pay close attention to what you pay close attention to because it's shaping your heart. And I believe that there's a portion of the American church that's being discipled by news cable, cable news, and not being discipled by God's word. And here's what Peter ends all this with. He says, that light, God's word that will shine, there's a day dawning. That day he capitalizes because he's talking about the day that Jesus returns. He says, when Christ, the morning star, the great light, will fully shine in your hearts. And what he means is this, that we see Jesus in part now, but on that day we will see him in full. And the, 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 the light of God's word, it shines in our hearts in part now, but on that day when we see Jesus, our hearts will be full of the light of Jesus. So this message that Peter wanted to remind them of as he was dying and being attacked, it was seen by human eyes. That's why we have it. It was spoken by God through men. That's why we trust it. And it shines in the darkness. And that's why we need it. Let's pray together this morning.